0: Well, here's a confession of a newsreader. Every time I see my daily running order and look at what's coming up on the programme, a little bit of my heart either rises or sinks. And I can tell you this with great conviction. When I saw one name in my list of stories for the day, it always made my heart lift. That name was Andrew Doyle, who used to come on my show every evening to talk about, well, the the subject was Woke Watch. Uh, And he's still now here at GB News. Uh, and has his own show that he produces, but also continues to work as a writer, very successful writer on free speech topics, but also, of course, as a stand-up comedian too. Andrew Doyle's alongside me here in the studio. Andrew, welcome to you. Thanks for coming. Thank you in. for having I appreciate me. Appreciate your time. And it's true. I, you know, you, 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 were, you are, I wouldn't say you were funny. You still are funny. Uh, and, but also you had that happy gift. Of explaining, I think, very abstract, abstruse, complicated, culture wary stuff in a way that people got, and I think that's a real gift for our, that's a gift kind. of our time. But it's true, it's true. I mean, because so, there people
1: do get mired in the language when it comes to this stuff, and so they get put off, and you know it. it Actually, the concepts are often quite simple, but they get disguised and clouded with the, yeah. with the way in which activists sort of dress it all up in this esoteric you stuff. You avoid using the
0: language. You don't no. avoid using the language. You still, you know, you will talk about gender-critical feminists. Yeah, uh, yeah. And, and, and it doesn't do that because you then set it in context and explain what it means. Yeah, and yeah. you don't patronise your audience. Oh, never. I always assume they're smarter than I am. <laughs> you know, uh, well, let, <laughs> that <establish, laughs> might not be true. Let's establish how smart you are because, I mean, you, you know, you are an erudite bookish scholarly man, and that doesn't always translate into our medium of television, which isn't always those things. Um, I don't know
1: how, I mean, I haven't been in academia for years, so so I'm sort of distanced from it. So I don't know, I'm bookish insofar as I read a lot of books, but I
0: wouldn't say I'm, uh, uh, I'm in the world of scholarship anymore.
1: But I have that background, I suppose.
0: Uh, we'll, we'll come around to sort of personal stories maybe later on. But I just want to uh, address a couple of stories that are in the news today. And I'm literally just writing uh, a sort of monologue about a story that really caught my eye. And I think it, it would probably catch yours. And, and it will uh, yet because it's been pushed by the Free Speech Union. Mm-hmm. I'm a member of the Free Speech Union Declaration of Interest. campaign, as the name suggests, for free speech. There's a guy who is going to a tribunal today and it will carry on tomorrow. He was a rail worker. He'd been there for over 10 years working for a rail company. He was invited onto an unconscious bias course, presumably locked down because the whole thing was done on teams. At the end of the the unconscious bias course, he forgot to mute his microphone. He turned to his wife and said something in terms of the lines of, what a load of rubbish that was. Yeah. I'm, not a, I'm not a, I don't benefit from white privilege. I'm not a racist. And it's, he alleges, for his pains, he was ultimately sacked. Mm. And I thought it was one of those little micro examples of how ordinary folk who never profess to have any particular, you know, irons in the fire of the culture wars have been dragged into the trenches. Oh, so everyone has, I think, to some degree. I mean, those unconscious bias, tests
1: or implicit association tests which were rolled out by harvard they've been now uh popping up in all sorts of companies and corporations and businesses uh charities all sorts of things people are just expected to take them but it's all predicated on the idea that they have any effect whatsoever i mean because first and foremost we all have unconscious biases we have lots of them um but there's no way to quantify them and rectify them measure them this isn't the case and the, the research is in on this i mean those Unconscious bias tests do nothing. They achieve absolutely nothing. The only time there's ever been any measurable change uh, in the workforce, it's actually made people slightly more racist or more likely to do racist things because it makes everyone hyper aware of race first and foremost. Um So they're very bad things. And I think you know, I often have teachers contact me saying, oh, "I have to do this unconscious bias thing," and I will always say to people, "Just refuse. Just say, don't do it." Really? Yeah, because they because you can point to the body of evidence that says. It it achieves nothing. It's a waste of time. If anything, it's counterproductive. So to do it, to go along with it, you're kind of complicit in this fantasy. You know, it's 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 just all theatre.
0: It just makes it feel so unheroic. I mean, we're living through times where in Europe people have been unbelievably heroic in Ukraine. And yet uh, and to even talk about a real war versus the culture wars feels slightly tawdry. But but I, I, I do think we come off worse from the comparison. I mean, for instance, um, you were saying people should should reject, should reject resist the invitation. I didn't when I was at Sky. I've been at Sky for 24 years. And it was kind of one of the final nails on the coffin for me when I got the invitation. Invitation, by the way, means you can decline an invitation. So yeah, you get, can you? In, well, you got in, it was also very clear it was compulsory. Yeah. The word compulsory was used. Now, there's a logic gap, air gap straight away there, isn't there? Between yes. the invitation, I can decline it, but it's compulsory. Total paradox. And at the end of it, I remember thinking the guy said it was utterly unconvincing. And he said, any questions? And the only one that popped into my head was, how much are you charging for this bollocks? Yeah. (laughs) And and of course, I didn't have the guts to say it. I wish I had. Oh, there's a big industry. People are
1: making an awful lot of money out of it. And as I say, because we know they don't work and yet they're still being used. It's a very easy way for companies to sort of say, look, we're making an effort to address uh issues of inequality uh, which i imagine somewhere like sky doesn't really exist anyway so that you know probably redressing an issue that doesn't need to be redressed uh a bit like when the bbc said they were going to spend 100 million pounds on improving diversity uh when there there isn't a problem there at the bbc in fact um minority groups are proportionately overrepresented in terms of off and on-screen talent so that was uh, trying to it was signaling something rather than fixing a problem that needed to be fixed so you know uh yeah, but that's why I suggest just refusing. Although, as you say, it's kind of coercive. You're invited. No one's saying it's compulsory, but you sort of know that it is and you sort of know there'll be a problem if you don't. I think when people start refusing to do this, similarly with when when you get a suggestion from HR saying, put your pronouns on your emails. um, At the moment, no one's forcing anyone to do that. When more and more people start saying, I'm not going to do that, then I think the next step will be, it's compulsory to do that. And then we're into the realm of, compelled speech. And then that's the nightmare. So that's why I just say, you know, for all the trouble it can cause and for all the problems you can cause for yourself. And I admit those are problems that don't affect me and probably do affect other people. So it's probably quite easy for me to say this, but there are groups that will support you if your company kicks off Uh, free speech union, very obvious example, Mm. counterweight is the other example. Uh, You can,
0: you know, and you will win ultimately when it goes through the legal process. Will will you, Andrew? that's, that's, That's the worry. I mean, you know, you're clever. You're highly networked. You've got information resources. There's a lot of people who don't 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 feel as uh, sure of their footing.
1: No, and it they takes got a lot. mortgage to pay. I get it.
0: Yeah, and it takes a lot. A certain type of personality,
1: uh, a certain kind of t- tenacity. If you take someone like Harry Miller from Fair Cop, that's someone you don't mess with because he will take it on and and lock horns and keep going and keep going. Maya for starter, you know, she lost the initial tribunal, had to appeal it. But of course, the appeal won because the higher courts again, with aren't, the help of the Free Speech Union, with help from the yeah. Free Speech Union. But the, you know, you have to have faith that some of the some of the judiciary is a bit ideologically captured,
0: but the higher courts aren't at the moment. So ultimately, it should all work but out. But for, for every MyForStarter, starter, there are other people who didn't lose their livelihoods or jobs. But just. By raising their head above the parapet a fraction, oh yeah, then there then there is a slight impediment to their future progress, and that's the chilling effect, isn't it? That actually you're not worried about, you know, let's say you resist the unconscious buyer's invitation, you're not worried that you'll be sacked necessarily, and there's a sort of there's there's always ways of of finessing these things, you know, you you happen to have COVID that week or whatever, there's ways you can salve your own conscience without tweaking the nose of the authorities, but you're still worried that it's going to have a chilling effect on your career, that you're seen as a slightly bad apple, member of the awkward squad, definitely. Just in terms, I, I, I was thinking about this today in the context of the case I mentioned earlier, the, the the rail worker. And I was thinking about when and why this happened and why corporations decided they felt that it could just stop being a transaction based upon you, know, you giving your time and labour and I give you money. Really straightforward. Yeah. And I thought, well, actually, it, it's, there were times it wasn't always like that. I come from Bradford originally and there's famously uh, uh, just outside Bradford, there's Salt's Mill. There was an eponymous Mr. Salt, who was a local philanthropist, and he provided everything as part of that patrician duty to the poor, the housing, and probably to some degree told them how to think, or at least you will go to Bible school on a a Sunday. So that bit, it's not unprecedented, but I would submit that this idea that corporations now have no compunction about telling you how to think is quite new. And it's totally undemocratic. Oh, it's terrible, because if HR are promoting a certain idea about the world that you don't
1: agree with, which happens in 90% of the case, um, you feel you can't... Uh, say anything. Unions similarly, the unions uh, don't necessarily represent the best interests of their of their members. I mean, a good example is the National Education Union, which uh, you know from what I see is basically an activist lobby group now, and it has a very kind of identitarian worldview, and it expects people to fall into line, and and you know it's telling. Teachers, there is an urgent need to decolonize every level of the curriculum. It's telling teachers, we need more activists in the classroom. We need more activism. It's the last thing you need. It's the opposite of what you need <laughs> in the classroom. And this is coming from a union. So, the And the problem is, you know, how do you resist that? You know, but I, I always come back to the idea of people power. I think if I were a teacher today, which I'm glad I'm not, uh, I wouldn't, I would leave the NEU. I would join another union, one that represents my interests. I make a point of saying that. I wouldn't a lot of them do start a, members of a union, actually. Yeah. Yeah, just, I just find a way not to yeah. toe that line. And the more people do, I, under, I totally get what you're saying. I'm not in the position where I'm going to lose my job for making a fuss. Um, well, I'm never going to be asked to put pronouns at the end of my email anyway. Um, but I think you need to, there needs there's safety in numbers. More and
0: more people have to do it because it is the majority that's the thing i, I, I just want I, I, we've talked about this a lot uh, uh, over the months about that idea uh, whether things that are best left in the sort of private realm should then be jumped on by government but actually i do think there might be a role for, at mm-hmm. least for, for government to examine the internal hr structures of big corporations to inject some democracy so yeah. for example when my previous employer went sky uh, said we're going to you know we urge you all to use an inclusive language guide now and so outgo mum, dad brother sistering you know a- avoid those 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 yeah. those those gender uh, loaded names words um, if they'd put that to the, to the democratic vote if they'd asked the nigerian security guards and the filipino cleaners and 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 the poles serving coffee all thirty thousand employees, rather than just having it a, a small cabal, a cadre of highly educated, highly networked, self-approving, self-highly um, uh, entitled people who decided amongst themselves what what yeah, where yeah. the truth lies. And I, and I think there's a way of writing into a corporate structure or of governance uh, a bit of democracy. I would I, suggest. I completely agree. That's why I'm very pro-union in in, in the sense that I think you
1: need to hear the the workers voices in all of this stuff and this all actually, of them yeah and this actually does the opposite of that it, it is a top down as you say very entitled uh, body and mindset um and it's 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 very patronizing it's very let them eat cake it's it's you know <laughs> let's let decide for you what is best for you and and um you know it's it's yeah, yeah it's difficult isn't it the idea of government intervention i think Maybe it is required. At some point, it will be required. I think there will be moments where the government will have to get involved. So if, as I say, we reach the point of compelled speech in the workplace, well, that's that. That's where something's going to have to change. Yeah. Can we talk a little bit about Twitter? Uh, were, were you glad Elon Musk pulled it off? Yeah. Uh, for no other reason than um, Twitter needs a shake-up, right? So we have these huge uh, tech giants that completely dominate. It is an oligopoly. They dominate... Uh, the social media realm and that can't go on because they are all, all uh, in lockstep ideologically speaking and they're they're becoming so brazen now ever since the tr- the ban on trump from facebook and and uh, twitter you know i mean in the week following trump's ban uh, th- thousands and thousands of right leaning accounts were purged i mean it was just very clear what was going on because they were completely emboldened they'd got rid of the sitting president and they got away with it yeah. And so they kept going. And then there was a Hunter Biden laptop story, you know, locking the New York Post out of its Twitter account for sharing a story that turned out to be true. Right. Because the because it was inconvenient to those who were supporting the Democrats in the run up to the election. You know, it's about as close to election interference as, as it can come, I think. Um, and even blocking people from sharing the article. And this is the New York Post yeah. founded by Hamilton. This is not a blog in the corner of the internet on the dark web or something. This is a major publication. So yeah, I think something had to be done. Uh, it was quite clear that attempts to set up rival platforms weren't working. You had Gab, you had Parler. When it came to Parler, the tech giants collaborated to ensure that it couldn't work to take it down yeah. because everyone was saying all along, well, if you don't like it, build your own platform. Yeah. When they did, they attacked it and made it unusable. So, you know, so that wasn't going to work. Um, Getter's had some success. But the trouble with all of these platforms is when they emerge, because they have a commitment to free speech, the worst kind of voices will migrate to those platforms. Yeah. And, and then l- people can Look point. how horrible it is. Exactly. Yeah. Then they can paint it as a far right platform. The point about free speech is yeah, unpleasant people are gonna say yeah. stuff. But the way to, to, to handle that would have been if, if lots of left leaning people, liberal people would have gone to those platforms as well and drowned those out because those voices are a m- huge minority. But that's not what happens because activist publications like The Guardian, like The New Statesman, will pick out those few random tweets or posts and say, that's what the whole platform is. And that's what they do. They misrepresent it. Um, so it couldn't work that way. It was never going to work. So the only way was really for some benevolent dictator to, to take over. <laughs> but the,
0: for me, there's, the, there is a whiff of a parable about the whole thing that at the end, I mean, oh, the irony yeah. of, 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 a, of a company that actually you, wrapped itself in this fuzzy duvet uh, of, uh, uh, of, 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 of morality, but actually was at the end of the day just about making money and squashing the opposition, as you just said. Yeah, uh, and then, But then it's salvation in, in our minds, or it's damnation in the eyes of, of those who are unhappy about it, it comes in Form of somebody who is the very acme of capitalism. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, and, and so that it feels a bit like a parable. Do, there were those people saying that when Musk t- took over, before he could look under the bonnet, the algorithm was tinkered with. And therefore, you had people like uh, Donald Trump Jr. saying, I've got 87,000 <laughs> extra followers in a day. I can't possibly account for this. They've shifted the algorithm. Something happened. We don't know what happened because Twitter is has always lacked transparency.
1: That's been one of its major failings. Um, I suppose the other well, theories are that if Musk comes in and asks for the, um, the the details of their policies to be revealed, something might be exposed. Maybe they're undoing a lot of work. I mean, we already had Jack Dorsey admitting that shadow banning was a thing. They did do that, and that means that they. If they don't agree
0: with you, they will hide your tweets. Let's, let let's just be Catholic about this and just assume there's some people who do not know what shadow banning yeah. is. I, in brief it's what? It's where you tweet uh, but no one can read it.
1: Because the way that you read tweets is they pop up on your uh your feed, which are the people you follow. If you are shadow banned, if someone is shadow banned, you won't see those tweets. So that's why they don't get retweeted or liked or seen. So it's a you know, you can be tweet you're basically tweeting into a vacuum. Yeah. And no one sees you think you're tweeting and you think it's all going as planned. What you don't know is no one can read it. That's shadow banning. And that's, um, they said they were going to stop doing that. There's been plenty of evidence that they still did. Um, this is the problem they can do with them. Well, this was been one of the great things. You say it's like a parable. One of the best things about it is that since Musk has taken over, you've seen the hypocrisy. It's exposed the hypocrisy of the people who had always said for years, well, Twitter's a private company. It can ban whoever it likes, it can censor whatever it likes. It's fine uh, because they're private, you know? And then now, now Elon Musk owns it. They're saying, Oh, well, hold a minute. That's different, uh, you know, because maybe someone who doesn't agree with them might yeah. control it. And so their principles go out the window because they don't have any principles. Uh, so that's been quite good to see that. But uh, yeah, I think I think there are some basic things that he could do to make Twitter better. One of them is transparency. Firstly, draw up a terms of service that makes it clear when you violate the terms of service mm-hmm. rather than banning accounts, sending them emails saying, We've, you've broken our terms of service. And when you ask why, you get another automated email saying you've broken our terms of service. People don't mind when they, when they knock the ball out of court, but they need to know where the court lines are, don't they? Yeah, because then, of course, you start suspecting all sorts of things. And sometimes that suspicion can run to conspiracy theories and all sorts of other things. So it's not good for anyone. So we just need to know what their terms of service are. They need to stop shadow banning. He needs to allow free speech on the platform. If he can do, if he can do that, then it would be, it will, be a re- it will be a milestone. It's not like setting up a new platform which can be attacked and destroyed. Twitter is already too established by having it run by someone who has an authentic commitment to free speech. It could make all the difference, but I say all that, I don't know if it will. It probably won't. But, but you know, there's the hope there at least. It can't get any worse.
0: Uh, I, I, what's one of the really unusual things uh, about, about you is your ability to have a foot, uh, you know, deeply in Twitter through to tony McGrath do I- I'm mispronouncing her first name. Titania, titania. that's right. Titania. Americans struggle with it. They often say t- 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 Titania. T- titania, they say, actually. <laughs> they t- How many followers does she have? 700,000, I think. Well, so, are, yeah. I- I- are, you, are you tweeting most days?
1: <inaudible> I am at the moment. I go through patches where I just leave it for weeks on end. Yep. Uh, I used to tweet five, six times a day in the early days. I, I was really into it. Yeah. Um, and now it's just something that I... If something occurs in the news or something occurs to me yeah.
0: that I want to comment on in that way, then I, I have that outlet to do it. And for people who haven't come across her, I mean, she is a parody of what it, inter- intersectionalist, feminist, outraged at, at minor infractions of what she would consider to be the right way of thinking.
1: Yeah, I mean, she's not a direct parody because that would imply it's based on an individual or someone, it's, she is a satirical representation of that kind of identitarian G- give, give us mindset. an example
0: of one of your favorite tweets that she's, she's made.
1: Uh, Oh, that's, (laughs) you're just throwing that at me now. Uh, I don't know if I have a uh, favourite tweet. Um, So, for instance, uh, she will say things, she will try and find skewed logic. So, for instance, yesterday, let's just take yesterday. So, Dave Chappelle is attacked on stage and her response that... uh, the you know the fact that uh dave Chappelle, this black comedian was attacked on stage proves that Chappelle's comedy incites violence against minority groups <laughs> so she finds a skewed logic yeah, around it yeah. similarly like with um uh rachel mckinnon the cyclist who male cyclist identifies as female and then starts winning all the medals and she said why you know people always misogynists always say that women are terrible at sports but then, why is it that Rachel McKinnon only started winning gold after she transitioned to female? So she's finding a way, and this is because this is what they do: they, they try to find a skewed logic to express to 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 work around anything, yeah, um, and make it fit their ideological agenda. So that's the sort of thing that she
0: does. What What I was getting starting to get to was the fact that on the one hand, you're in this 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 very um, it's almost solipsistic medium, you yeah. know, you're at your laptop, but also you, you, you're fighting a good fight in, in the old fashioned way that, that goes back to, you know, ancient Greece, and men, was men uh, standing in front of a large crowd. Uh, practising rhetoric yeah. and persuading them as to the merits of their argument often through humour and you're doing that you've got the performance gene but you've also got this sort of you know, quiet cogitating gene as well I mean I'm, what I'm curious as to how much the Twitter stuff helps the, the on stage stuff or whether you almost just have to you know, pull off your pull off your shirt and through, there's a sort of <laughs> S underneath and you, and you become this alter ego I don't know I'm, I'm, I'm really curious because I'm terrified I'm mean the idea of standing up in front, on a stage in front of a large crowd and trying to make them laugh absolutely terrifies me from the you know tips of my toes to the yeah to, <laughs> you know, to top of my head but you do it and, and uh, that doesn't terrify me though anymore i mean i,
1: I think i've done stand up for so many years that it you know a- anyone who's done stand up for over 10 years will be accustomed to uh, shows going beautifully perfectly and also really badly you got on like telly to some degree yeah exactly and so, and so you know just as you you don't fear or even get nervous going on in front of a camera. Most people would, by the way. Mm. So mm. it's just because what's the worst that can happen? You know, I, I've been, I've had people throw stuff at me. I've had people shout at me or whatever. That's it. It's a performance, you know, but I, but also 99% of the shows when I do stand up, it goes really well. So
0: I'm, I'm you not- you stop fuss. people filming? When you're when you're on stage, do you try and stop people filming you? I only I only, oh. s- I only say that because when well I'm on the telly, I often occasionally I will think to myself it could all end tonight. You know, if I, I say, can say the wrong thing, yeah, and it can end in a night. Yeah, of course, and and that's tough. I've got you know have mouths to feed, etc. Uh, whereas if you're doing a live performance, it might be cr- you know y- your face may redden and you may be you know uh, toe curling, embarrassed in the moment. But actually, if nobody's filming it. If it's not a matter of public record. It's neither here nor there, is it? But oh. I'm just wondering whether, whether people do film it. I'm sure that's always possible and if I mean but you don't you don't stop people at the door saying
1: that no smartphones but no there's
0: no copyright we, stuff it, it,
1: it, there's just a convention in in comedy nights that you're not going to film right if 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 you if you're filming someone from the staff will come over and tell you not to film Right. Okay. you know, okay. that always happens um because we've seen that particularly when there's hecklers if that's filmed and it because you know that moment of if it's not going well you're not even embarrassed because you're so in your persona if I'm doing a gig and on the rare occasions where the audience just are not with me, I almost quite enjoy that because there's something quite theatrical about that. And it's like, and my persona likes it. So it's, it, that isn't a risk. The risk is when people are heckling and shouting stuff and you have to come back immediately with things that are non scripted. And in those situations, you can end up saying something that might get you into trouble, right? Have you? No, I don't think so. I mean, <laughs> but I'm not a naturally controversial person. I don't say things that are, like, for instance, someone like, um andrew lawrence someone like um uh jerry sadowitz who their instinct is they're disruptors right so their instinct is to say the thing that annoys and irritates if someone's annoyed at them they will exacerbate the very thing that that person was annoyed about that's the joke and that's what they that's what they would commit to on stage mm. but if you're filmed now who was it the guy from seinfeld who was filmed shouting racial slurs in america michael richards and he had to go on and do a big apology on one of those nights i think it might have been in bill Mayer or something um i mean because the language was horrific it was a horrific racist mm. language but in the moment i can see what he was doing like this was a um a, a stand-up persona Who, uh, is saying the most horrible, outrageous things deliberately to provoke. And it's, people don't understand it. They think it's just someone's inner evil coming out. And it's not that. It's, it's something very different. So you have to understand what stand up is and how it, and how it works. Um, but those, but that would never happen to me because I don't have that kind of quality in what my stand up is. So I'm at less at
0: risk as, as a more subversive kind of act. Can I do a bit of uh, TV news naval gazing with you? And, yeah, and it's around this. So we put you. We've in, you've been invited to do your show here uh, you, you're not a journalist you're first and foremost a free speech campaigner and a stand-up comic there's a broader trend uh, you see it here but you see it elsewhere as well of uh, the days where people like me you know started in newspapers but you yeah. see radio but, you know life in journalism uh, and then you end up sort of being this you know the the, the gray back uh, behind the desk um, and increasingly, you know, it's Arlene Foster, it's Ruth Davidson, it's a former Home Secretary, it's yeah. David Lammy, and it reminds me a little bit of where we were in sports uh, presenting 25 years ago, where suddenly it wasn't good enough just to be Christopher Martin Jenkins or you know one of those sort of great cricketing uh, commentators or football commentators. You had to be Gary Lineker. Yeah. You can't just be an astute observer of the game. You've got to have captained, not just played for England. Captain yeah yeah. Uh, and, and that was fine in sport because sport ultimately doesn't really matter the news does war and stuff and yet that's the direction we're going in uh, thoughts well uh yeah you're right
1: I'm not a journalist and I've ended up doing something that I suppose a lot of people would be surprised about maybe it's because the emphasis has gone more towards commentary and I do have a background in political commentary yeah because I've written columns for I wrote columns for Spiked. For, I think I started about seven years ago and I did that for a long time. So, so my, I've done comedy work, but also commentary and analysis and that kind of thing. And, and those, I suppose, lend themselves to the kind of show I do here, which is a show that is really about commentary. It's not about reportage. You know, it's, 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 you know, that's, so that kind of makes sense. Yeah. Uh, I think if they asked me to, you know, go out to a war zone and report on it. I would say I'm not qualified to do that. <laughs> and, yet, and yet you might
0: be. And yet you I don't might. Think be. I would be. Well, you might be because I mean, I I think there's a I think there has to be a mix. But I'm certainly not a, not against the trend wholeheartedly. I, I think what it's done is explode this idea that you know people like me who are meant to be the sort of seamless conduits uh, to, through which information flows without an area jolt is was always rubbish, actually. And I think you know there is an honesty, there is a transparency about putting somebody. I don't know, a former Home Secretary with a former Foreign Secretary. I had Michael yeah. Portillo on the show last night, yeah. a former Defence Secretary. He wasn't hosting the show, but he was almost co-hosting it, and I think was, that's
1: fine. But there are journalistic skills that come with many, many decades of experience and training, and those are the kind of things that I think are really valuable. And I think there is a so I don't think we should ever lose uh, the 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 vocation of journalism. The problem, I suppose, we have is that and so many prominent journalists are now for, first and foremost activists and are willing to misrepresent and actually completely undermine their own training and their own background uh, because they feel the end justifies the means. I'm not gonna name any names, but we know who we're talking about. And w- when that happens and when people see that, you get this legitimation crisis. People no longer trust the voice of journalism because there are too many among them who are willing to lie uh, to advance an agenda. That's where it, it poisons the whole well, yeah, I think.
0: Yeah. We, uh, I think I can say, with, say this with confidence, I think we, you and I both uh, love words, uh we love the expression of ideas through words uh we believe in the idea of literature as a roadmap or a manual manual to understanding the human condition in all its complexities uh and i say this by way of a preamble to introducing uh the importance of novels i'm reading i mean i should have read it years ago it? i should have read it as a teenager obviously to kill a mockingbird i'm yeah. finally getting around to kill a mockingbird uh, and i and i got a few pages in before the n-word appears for the first time and i remembered that i think we'd had a discussion about it on air about books that had been cancelled or now had trigger warnings yes you know and here's 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 a book that for many people it, back in the day would have been the first time they'd been presented with some of the complexities of of, of true white racism yeah you know yeah. The, the, the the you know uh, we, we we know the story uh the, the black man on a trumped up rape charge and Atticus Finch, the lawyer who represents him, white lawyer, facing huge hostilities, children facing hostility in small town Alabama. Yeah. And yet that of all stories then was was getting triggered.
1: Yeah. And it's not just To Kill a Mockingbird. It's it's Huckleberry Finn. It's any word that it's of mice and men. So any word where any book where that word appears, uh, because um, the intersectional activists on the whole, uh, and I'm not talking about the people who originated the idea. Those are scholars. I'm talking about the people who have taken on board these ideas in this sort of lu- lukewarm way. Uh, they're not good with art or literature. They're not good at this. They don't understand it. They don't see its purpose. So all they can see is the word. So they see the N-word and they automatically think, well, that's a racist book. We have to shut it down. There was even in a, a Ottawa uh, a, a local school board that um, took thousands of books from various, I mean, across the whole area. From various schools and burnt them, and they they called it a flame purification ceremony. Oh, they did not. And then they uh, used the ashes to plant a tree about <laughs> diversity or something, right? So, you know, but they, you know, it's it's overtones of Ray Bradbury, it, but it, it's 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 terrifying, um, and they don't realise they think they're doing something really good, but they're mimicking the fascism. Um, but yeah, so and to kill a mockingbird again and again comes
0: up in in all of this stuff. And isn't and, it, isn't it a shame that I've, I've just I'm not far beyond the point where. Uh, the uh scout and Jem finch the two kids atticus's two kids uh are taken to a black church by by the housekeeper who, um, who Cal- calpurnia, went, well done yeah and calpurnia takes them into a black church yeah and where they they're not initially welcomed actually yeah there's somebody who blocks their way and says you can't bring those white kids into this church and and it's it's and of course they are welcomed in eventually yeah. by by the, the vicar and others but it is just that reminder and you can imagine them as much as the N word. This being the objectionable bit. This reminder that actually racism is a human universal. It's as old as the hills, if not older. And people will be racist to people of, uh, of uh, who are not of their s- skin colour. And so explicitly, regardless of who they are.
1: And so explicitly, the book aims to expose that. And and At- what Atticus explicitly says it about about you know you can't know someone else unless you walk around in their in their skin. And and it's 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 such a powerful. Message. It's such a powerful book. It's so it's treated so well, Um and the idea that I mean, I'm surprised that in a sense the book hasn't been cancelled for uh, following the Me Too movement. Insofar as Me Too was all about believe the victim, no matter what, no matter what, yeah, always
0: believe the victim. Oh, sorry. I nearly laughed well, at a uh, fictional rape. I mean, you have got to be careful, right? Well, right.
1: So this is a this is a woman who um, is crying rape on a black man falsely. Right, much like the Emmett Till uh, situation. So, um, but so in, I, that's why I, I would be surprised because it does create complexities then. Because then, anyway, but that's a different issue. But but yeah, the idea that the book it's like, and that children shouldn't have access to this book. I mean, I taught that book as at uh, secondary school, and it's a really, it's a really interesting. It's a much more powerful way to explore the evil of racism through literature and through representation than trying to teach them about critical race theory and tell them to think of themselves first and foremost as their skin color and secondarily as an individual and thereby reinscribe old racial norms, which is terrible. It's the opposite of what you should do. So that's why I would say, that's why they also have to attack these books. I mean, Huckleberry is another great example because Huckleberry Finn is a really powerful anti-racist book in the original meaning of that term anti-racist, not what passes for anti-racism now. Um, And it's a satire, it's a great way to expose it. You know, you've got all these adults who think they're pious, God-fearing, good Christian people, and they're exploiting their fellow human beings, trafficking them, you know, and it it takes a child to see through it. And there's something really powerful about the fact that it comes from, it's in his voice. You know, it's great and it's a really good, and kids love that book. Mm. But but, um, that too has, uh, you know, a lot of people have scotched it. Um, But as I say, it's about standing up against it i think um, you know if, if if i was still a teacher and i was told from up high you can't teach huckleberry finn you can't teach mice and men i would say i'm going to yep. so you'll have to fire me <laughs> you know because that's the yeah. way i mean i had a, a head teacher telling me i couldn't teach any character any novel with a gay character in um and i said no I'm, and so i resigned from that school Wow. and that was not that long ago uh, but she was a fundamentalist christian headmistress i was sc- she's still the head of a school in london i'm not going to say name names yeah. to settle scores but um you know she, I'm, My impression was she doesn't much like gay people. And I thought I was like, I don't mind if you don't like gay people. That's your private business. Um, but when you're trying to change school policy and what I can teach as a literature teacher
0: on the base of your personal prejudices, I don't want to work in that school. So I didn't. I left i come back to uh, and I'm, I'm always really curious. but, but in my sort of, sort of darkest moments at sky when i just thought this 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 is not the institution that i joined yeah f- you know 20 years earlier i'd left the bbc it was it, I, it didn't fit and i thought sky offered an alternative ideological viewpoint to pretend that somehow they're all the same was rubbish the early days of murdoch at sky it was a little more there was a bit more of the whiff of the daily mail sulfur uh and little less of the daily mirror as there is now and uh you know, I, 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 you know, felt felt back then that there was a, there, there was a, there was a feeling that uh, Sky was certainly heading in a, a direction I couldn't quite sit comfortably with, and I, I, my outlet was to take people for, for for lunch, people like uh, Douglas Murray, uh, James Dellingpole, and say, look, guys, you know, I can't say this, you know, publicly, but privately, <laughs> I'm rooting for you, or rooting for bits of what you say. I remember uh, Douglas Murray, um, you know, who's just got a book out, of course, and I'm going to be talking into in, in a podcast in a couple of weeks. A- and he had cameras. You know, there were, the, the, the Met had a ca- oh, I should shouldn't probably say this, but there were, you know, he, 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 his personal security, because of some of the things he said about radical Islam in particular, yeah. had imperiled him personally. Yeah, yeah. And, and I come back to this, you know, per- moral courage, physical courage— um, I, I, I didn't really leave Sky on principle, I almost did. I certainly didn't, on a, on a specific point as you did from that school, it takes such courage, such courage to do that. Um, but actually compared to say Douglas Murray's uh, courage or the courage of some people who really are facing physical danger yeah, for yeah. what they say, I'm just a gog, I just, I'm such a coward, I look what, at these people and just think amazing. But that's what I mean is that it, it's not,
1: it's not courageous at, on that level for you know for me to walk away from a school when i know i can get another job yeah. it's not great it's not cu- it's not the courage of being in a war zone or as you say Douglas is a perfect example i mean th- those kind of threats that's re- that's real that's mm. that's you know it takes you know genuine courage to still say what you think even with the risk of you know, being mm. physically harmed. Can I,
0: can I just get, so, just get something off my chest about the war zone thing? Because I, I, I think it's an important distinction. I mean, clearly, I, I've got ex-colleagues at Sky, people like Stuart Ramsey and Alex Crawford. We all think of people like Lisa Doucette the BBC, Jeremy mm. Bowen, you know, brave people. Um, but no braver, I would submit. Uh, and, and I thought this was really true in the early 2000s when... Uh, there was a whole gang of war correspondents, I used to move amongst them in Iraq and Afghanistan and southern Lebanon and places like that. And and, and there was a, there were there was a lot of vainglory. Right. There was a lot of uh, self eulogising going on. Oh there. really? Yeah, I think okay. so. And I th- and I think it, was, it it was exploded by the invasion of Iraq, where uh, suddenly there were. You, you couldn't deny the fact or avoid the fact there were 17, 18-year-olds from British Army Infantry Regiments who were on six-month postings on £17,000 a year. And they weren't retiring to the comfort of their five-star yeah. hotels, having delivered their piece to come with a flat fest on in a place that wasn't that hostile, actually. Uh, and if they said, actually, this is not for me, I'd like to go home. Yeah. Well, you're going to Colchester because you're going to be court-martialed. And I... and I, I, I so Yeah, it's not I, comparable, I, I, is it? I'm, 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 <laughs> I'm not, I'm not, what I'm saying is... I think what, what I'm saying is that it's it's incomparable... To, we we laud our war correspondents as models of bravery. Actually, the people who are braver, are the people who are stuck there fighting, yeah, and I agree. They don't want it anymore. Yeah, yeah I so, completely
1: agree. You know. I, well, I don't disagree with that. Okay, well, but I also think that war correspondence work is uh, really important, and uh, it, it, there's a there's a skill to it. That, that we shouldn't undermine, I think. Uh,
0: I I, ag- I agree. I think there's also a skill to bringing out every day what really matters to people. And that's not just to say it's about having that instinct for tabloid stories. Yeah. It, it's about recognising early an inflection point when the wind is just beginning to change. And, I, and again, I, I do love circularity. I'm going to come back to that chap who I was mentioning earlier, whose who's, who's tribunal is today, yes. the rail worker who whose comments were eavesdropped on by the instructors. And that Actually, other colleagues, It's uh, he alleges, by the way, it's not, yeah, yeah. it's not a done deal yet. This is his allegation. And I think sometimes it's those those small acts of quotidian heroism. The yeah. sort of slight dull, almost, you know, what's heroic about that? Uh, you know, but actually it sort of is.
1: Oh yeah, no, I'm not trying to undermine the, 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 the man you're talking about uh, taking this further and challenging this. Yes, that does take courage. I'm not trying to say, oh, well, you're not in a war zone, so you're not courageous. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm saying, I was actually specifically saying, Someone in my position who could afford to walk away from a job, that's not the same because, I, you know, I knew I could get another job. And, I knew, you know, so that's not the same thing, I don't think, yeah. you know. Uh, and that's why I'm very wary of when I when I say stand up against this stuff, complain about this stuff, all the rest of it. It actually can affect people's careers. You're absolutely right. And it does take and, you know, people are on the,
0: you know, they, they can't afford to lose a job, you know, so. Uh, the 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 fundamentalist christian who didn't like the the cut of your jib or at least you the, the, the wanted to pres- prescribe certain books um you know i'm a god botherer like uh, you know mass going catholic um do you uh, do, 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 do you have i mean am i part am i is my tribe part of the problem no i don't
1: think <laughs> so. no i i mean <laughs> well look i come from a, a catholic tribe myself i don't think i so it would be weird for me to say catholics are the problem um No, the problem has always been uh, with religious folk who want to impose their views on other people and impose their ways of life, not with those who practice religion. I mean, I recall when I was I taught at a boarding school and I organized a school trip amongst sixth formers to see a very controversial show which satirized elements of religion. And um, it was people like the bursar who kicked off saying we can't do this. But the, the chaplain said, no, my my faith is strong enough. I'm not, you know, I hate the idea of the show and I hate what it stands for. But if you have faith, you're not going to be threatened by someone mocking it or challenging it or questioning it. But it's the opposite When 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 this head teacher I'm talking about, she felt that there was an area of discourse and literary expression and artistic expression that should be cut off from these kids. Uh, because of her own prejudices this is what i'm talking about it's the, the imposition of one's view on someone else that i have a problem with mm. not with i don't even have a problem with her hating gay people if she does I, I i don't i think everyone has the right to feel whatever they feel for whatever reason be they religious or just downright just um prejudice inexplicable prejudice mm. i don't want to impose that but what i'm saying is she took it to the next step which was i want everyone else to think like me and i think that's a mild form of authoritarianism
0: on that word author- authoritarianism, I, I hadn't. I did a, I managed to get an item to air this week because I, I felt we were missing a really big story. It mm-hmm. was it was the end of Ramadan. It was uh, it was Eid, uh, and three and a half million of my compatriots or thereabouts, a substantial number of them, were celebrating, exchanging gifts, uh, and uh, eating heartily. Uh, and and I wanted to explore what Ramadan, in particular. You uh, know, I, mean, I say this as a you know convinced Catholic who actually uh, who, who reserves the right to critique Islam to the point where I won't use the word Islamophobia, which I think prevents a fair critique of yeah. of, uh, of Islam. But I was I'm curious about about the self discipline required by a religious period like Ramadan, like Lent used to be, yeah. and is it authoritarian I'm trying to knit this together is it authoritarian for a belief system to demand of its adherence that they do something which I, I would submit to you and others is actually of great use heavens above I did a story last night about galloping rates of obesity in this country yeah. and there was a raging argument about whether obesity is a disease or whether you know let's not u- use phrases like willpower. It's not willpower, it's a disease. It's willpower, guys, to a great degree. It's about willpower. And you can learn willpower and you can be instructed in willpower from the early stage. And I would say many of our Muslims still practice that will yeah. to, to be abstinent and be to fast for days on end. Um, but, it, but what I'm trying to get to is that that is a result of an imposition on children, that's where it starts, of a belief yeah. system, which is absolutely rigorous and unbending to some degree. So I would say it's not authoritarian
1: because adherents choose to be adherents you know uh if i subscribe to a religious worldview and i buy into the idea that i need to fast from this point to this point i'm making that choice it's not an imposition because i can walk away it becomes an imposition in islamic states where to walk away from the faith makes you an apostate and you can be killed that's authoritarian and that's where the, the distinction lies i think the question of children is a complicated one insofar as richard dawkins has made the argument and i think it's quite persuasive uh that there's no such thing as a christian child there's no such thing as a muslim child this is like saying that's a marxist child or you know because you're, you're basically saying this child has thought about the various ramifications of this belief system and has embraced it and that's not true as you say children are you know religious children are indoctrinated into that and that's why so many later turn their backs on it um, as you did yeah well no not really i'm still i still uh, believe in god and i still uh go to church uh, very very rarely uh, so, so which is better than nothing um,
0: <laughs> <There's> hope yet
1: <laughs> uh, no lapsed it would be the phrase yeah. we would yeah. use uh so i think yeah that's where there is a complication i think is when it comes to to children uh i think on balance i'm probably against faith schools uh i say that as someone who went to one yeah. uh, i think i'm ag- i think i'm against that because i do i think dawkins is right on that um
0: final thought uh, i know you occasionally uh take yourself off uh to a, a garret with a nice view to write mm-hmm. uh, w- w- will that become a more permanent feature of your life because you're you're very public facing uh and you, you probably carry all kinds of scars from being quite so public facing you know whether that's from twitter or you know the books you've written um d- d- would you like to disappear into into that ivory tower and just close the door on it all behind you oh yeah i mean i absolutely one day would love to be off social media
1: and, uh, yeah, I, I mean, the, the places I like to go are isolated places, most definitely. That is my instinct. That's my nature. It's also where I get the most work done. So, uh, ultimately, yeah, I would like to retreat somewhere by the sea. And, you know, like in the Iris Murdoch novel, of course, in that novel, he tries to do that and all of his old ex-wives turn up and all <laughs> his people from the past. And he can't, I mean, that's the point. He can't escape it. Yeah. Um, but, just don't tell everybody where you go. Just, well, that's the that's the other way of doing it. But then I do like human company as well. I'm not a I'm not you know <laughs> a sort of Um, misanthropist. um So it's uh, or maybe I'm just romanticising the idea in my head. But I do love being in a place near the sea. Uh, where, you know, I go to Sark a lot because there's no cars there, so I like being somewhere where there is no that, that just silence and and beauty and a weird kind of gothic beauty as well. It's not like it's not a pretty place in that sense, Sark. It's a, it's a, it's a strange beauty about it, which I really, really like. Um, so yeah, I think that would be a goal, but probably not one I'll ever achieve, I, I assume. Andrew Doyle, thank you. Thanks.